0: Following is presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Uh,
1: so this morning's reading, um, before we introduce our guest this morning, who, quite uh, interestingly, I, I got a call or a, a message from Jenna this week. Can you do the reading and, and the introduction? I said, sure, but I didn't know who it was. She sends me the bio. I'm like, well, of course, almost exactly one year ago today, Becca was here with us. And I was the one introducing her, so, <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. But this morning's reading comes from uh, the book of Joshua, um, chapter 3, starting in verse 14, and then going into chapter 4 through verse 7. When the people set out from their tents to cross over the Jordan, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant were in front of the people. Now the Jordan overflows all it, overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, so when those who bore the Ark had come to the Jordan... And the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the edge of the water. The waters flowing from above stood still, rising up in a single heap far off at Adam, the city that is beside Zerithon. While those flowing toward the sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, were wholly cut off. Then the people crossed over opposite Jericho. While all Israel were crossing over on dry ground, the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan until the entire nation finished crossing over the Jordan. When the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, select 12 men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them, take 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan from the place where the priest's feet stood Carry them over with you and lay them down in the place where you camp tonight. Then Joshua summoned the 12 men from the Israelites whom he had appointed, one from each tribe. Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, one for each of the tribes of the Israelites, so that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the Israelites a memorial forever. This morning, it's my privilege to introduce to you our guest speaker this morning. Um, Her name is Becca Ferguson Lutz, and she's been with us before. Like I said, almost exactly a year to the date um, today. Uh, she, uh, she's currently the, the assistant director for camp administration at uh, Camp Whitman. Um, she's responsible for camper registration, logistics, and year-round programming at camp. She's the she's in, uh, if I'm assuming this bio is correct, in her final year of seminary, right? Final year of seminary studies at Colgate Rochester Crozer Divinity School on the path to ordination in the Presbyterian Church, USA. Before starting seminary, Becca worked for 17 years as a teacher of high school. In college English and ESL in the U.S. and abroad, in China, Honduras, Romania, and and Qatar. Becca holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in English art. Now I'm going to read a couple of these, so don't get don't get ahead of me. Becca holds a Bachelor of Arts in English and Art History from Boston University, and two Master of Arts degrees from American University in Washington D.C. One in teaching, and the other in international peace and conflict resolution. In addition to her work at Camp Whippin', she is also she also serves as the director of Next Generation Ministries at Lake Avenue Baptist Church in Rochester. Would you welcome to Artisan Church with an artisan woo, Becca Ferguson-Lutz.
0: It is so good to be with you this morning, friends. Oh, Lord,
2: let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. My Lord and my Redeemer. Amen. I am not a nervous flyer, and I'm generally unruffled by the annoyances of air travel, but even though for I don't really mind flying for the most part, uh, I don't find airports particularly stressful. there is one aspect of international air travel that I really loathe. I understand the logic behind it, and I appreciate the safety imperative, but I still detest it. Now, this part of the sermon is going to feel like the opening sequence of an episode of Seinfeld, the part where Jerry is on stage doing his, like, what's up with that, shtick. So brace yourself. Okay. On the return leg of an international journey, you have to collect and recheck all your luggage if your initial U.S. arrival city is not your final destination, right? So, for example, if you're flying from Beijing, China, to Rochester, New York, you'll need to lay over at a major U.S. airport hub because there are no direct flights from Beijing to Rochester. So let's say you stop and transfer at Chicago O'Hare. When you arrive at O'Hare, after the 14-hour flight, you need to disembark the plane... Go through immigration control, collect your luggage at the appropriate carousel in the international terminal, then take your luggage through customs to the domestic terminal. You then need to recheck your luggage with the appropriate airline. If your piece of luggage never got off the plane from the international leg, you don't have time to wait around and inquire with a customer service agent about that because you've got 27 minutes to walk two and a half miles across the kingdom
0: before the gate closes for your next flight. And because you just got off a 14-hour flight from Beijing,
2: you have to do all of this while you are completely disoriented to time and space, you are slowly regaining motor function and circulation in your lower extremities. You're dehydrated and starving, and you smell the Starbucks and you smell the anti-ants, but you don't have time to stop. That is the part of international air travel that I really really dislike first world problems I know but still so when I read the narrative in Joshua chapters three and four I am deeply sympathetic to the plight of the Israelites it has been a long journey for them 40 years actually not 14 hours. And they weren't trying to mobilize the contents of an entire Boeing 787, which according to Wikipedia holds 242 passengers. The book of numbers, numbers, numbers tells us that there were 603,550 males age 20 and older, In that period of time, when the Israelites were wandering in the desert. So scholars extrapolate from that to estimate the size of the Israelite population at approximately 2.5 million. Of course, some scholars argue that it's impossible to sustain a population of 2.5 million people in the desert. uh, But that's a sermon for another day. (laughs) They were trying to get 2.5 million tired, hungry, dehydrated people across the river with all their stuff, right? Their tents, their animals, their pots and pans, their babies and diaper bags and strollers, their grandparents and their aging aunties and uncles, some of whom may have had mobility challenges. And did I mention the animals? You have to take all the animals with you. All the animals. All. Of course, the Egyptian army was not hot on their tails this time around. But they had been on the move for a really long time. The adrenaline and the novelty had really worn off. And we all know that sometimes that
0: final leg of the journey feels like the longest. Oh, and it was flood season.
2: So the waters were at their highest level. Verse 15 tells us that the Jordan River overflows its banks during the harvest.
0: God's timing is always perfect, right? Okay. Now, to recap, these folks had had quite the adventure while they were in the
2: desert. The Torah tells us that the Israelites were wandering, not camping with periodic hikes, but wandering for 40 years. Biblical culture marks a generation as a span of 40 years, although it might not have been 40
0: actual revolutions around the sun. Nonetheless, during that 40-year period, there was a lot of complaining.
2: The Israelites complained to God about Moses and his leadership. Moses complained to God about the Israelites, who were miserable and stubborn and recalcitrant. They did not follow directions well. God complained to Moses about the behavior of the Israelites, who simply could not and would not trust God, and therefore built idols and altars to an array of other gods, In a constant
0: effort to hedge their bets, there was also a lot of family drama. Miriam complained to her brother
2: about her brother Moses when he married a Cushite woman. So Moses banished her from the community. But then the people complained again and they refused to budge without Miriam.
0: So thankfully, Moses relented and pulled her back into the community. The Israelites worried about finding food and water, as
2: one does in the desert. Perhaps even more importantly, they really struggled with self-governance and social order after all those years of trauma and oppression as enslaved people in Egypt, they had to learn how to live together again on their own terms.
0: They had to learn how to listen to one another and to God. God gave the Israelites
2: the gifts of law and boundaries in the form of the Ten Commandments. And God was always present as a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, in the water that came from the rock, in the bread and the quail that fell from the sky. But The Israelites had to learn how to recognize God's presence and rely solely on God. And here they are at the doorway to the promised land. Woohoo! This had been a really long time coming. And before the people even had time to be terrified. Before they realized what was happening and went to Joshua to complain again, God performed another miracle. When the feet of the ark bearers hit the river's edge, the water stopped flowing, not just in that spot,
0: but 16 miles upstream We know that our God is a God of repeat performances. The crossing of water was a powerful image in the ancient world.
2: Deep water to them, and I would argue to us as well, represents chaos that was stronger than any
0: force However, throughout the Old Testament, God is continuously revealed
2: as stronger than the chaos that threatens to overwhelm. We don't need to take every story in the Old Testament literally. It's a general, generally a good idea not to take every story in the Old Testament literally. But I do think the message here is clear. God is bigger than anything that looms in front of you. God is bigger than anything
0: that threatens to engulf you. We cannot let fear derail God's plans for our lives. Friends, we need to
2: get to the water's edge. And put your toes in
0: because the water that threatens to take you down won't. To be clear, it was not the priests who created the safe
2: passage for the people. It was the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark of the Covenant isn't just a treasured heirloom. It's not a a relic of the past, one for which Harrison Ford would risk life and limb again and again, right? It's, it's not just a box filled with stone tablets.
0: That Ark is God's promise and God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant
2: is not a symbol to the Israelites. It is a powerful manifestation of God's revelation to and salvation for the people. That's why there were a lot of stringent regulations about the care and maintenance of that Ark. Those who were not among the Levite priests were commanded to stay far
0: away, 2,000 cubits, in fact. That's like approximately a kilometer. And some people
2: learned the hard way, the really hard way, R.I.P. Uzzah, son of Abinadab, that
0: the Ark is the most sacred of sacred objects. And so after
2: the Israelites had crossed the river with all their tents and their little children and their pots and pans and their animals and their aunties, the Lord told Joshua to take 12 stones from under the feet of those ark bearers, the priestly vanguard, and bring those 12 stones to the river's edge. And Joshua made a Gilgal, G-I-L-G-A-L, transliterated into English. Joshua made a Gilgal, literally a circle of stones in the middle of the river where the ark bearers had stood. When everyone and everything was safely across, Joshua made another Gilgal, another circle of rocks,
0: at the river's edge. Why two circles of stone? Well, once the business of the river returned to normal, the 12
2: stones in the middle of the Jordan would not be visible. I'm not sure that I entirely understand this, but I think that it's important that the Israelites had a Gilgal, a circle of stones that they could see and one that they could not see. But it was really important that they remember that those 12 stones were there in the middle of the river. So this circle on the river on the river bank, sorry, becomes a kind of tangible
0: aide de mémoire, a kind of totem for the other 12 stones. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's
2: not there. And the stones that I can't see are just as important as the stones that I can see. The promises that I see are just as important as the promises I don't
0: see. The blessings that I see are just as important as the blessings I don't see. One of the salient reminders of this biblical narrative
2: for me is that God is not going to give you a clear commandment and then an obstacle and then ask you to choose one or the other. That is not how God works. It would have been very easy for the Israelites to abandon the prescribed protocol for the Ark of the Covenant because of these special circumstances. After all, this is a raging river and this is the most valuable thing that they own. I wouldn't have blamed them for exploring alternative options. Like for example, let's try to find a cave where we can keep it safe. Let's we can deputize an elite force of levite guards to live inside and outside the cave. And in the meantime, we're going to build an awesome boat
0: or a bridge that will allow us to get the ark safely across. I would also have considered
2: perhaps burying it. I mean, it's a less attractive option, but it would keep it safe, I guess. I would also have explored the possibility of maybe... Building an alternate
0: carrying device rather than just two poles. How about a platform?
2: That would make sense, right? That's practical. Yeah, Levites, how about we build a platform and then more of you can carry the platform so as to mitigate the risk of tipping the box and having the thing break open and the stones tablets fall out. Again, this is the most precious thing that they owned. So if ever there was a circumstance in which you could say, well, maybe we need to consider some alternate protocols. This would have been it, but no, they just walked straight into the raging waters with all the currents and the cross currents and the eddies and the mud. Again, this was the most precious thing that they owned.
0: But there was nobody there shouting, wait, we can't do the
2: right thing, the thing that God has commanded us to do. And successfully
0: achieve the mission. It's not going to work. It's not practical. We're not going to make it. So again, God is not going to give you a clear command and
2: then an obstacle and ask you to choose one or the other. We must never abandon God's commands because they seem impractical. Or ill suited for the moment. God is not a fair weather God. And God's commands are not fair weather commands. And friends,
0: this is real. I have lived this. This scenario right there. There are church leaders in our
2: community. Who have said out loud to one another, we can't tell the congregation this information or we're going to lose members. Right? There are decision makers in churches who have said, we can't go public about being named in a Child Victims Act suit. Sure, I mean, every protocol, every ethical standard says that full disclosure of complaints like this is the pastorally responsible thing to do, but this is too much for our
0: folks. There are church leaders who do not and will not stand up to
2: bigots in the congregation over fear of losing the political and or financial support of those members. There are congregations that cling to toxic theologies and hurtful practices because challenging the status quo
0: and doing the right thing might mean the loss of some members. I have heard
2: very faithful church leaders say out loud without irony. If we do the right thing, the thing that God has called us to do, we will lose members. Even worse, the members we have will stop giving. We can't make it. We can't sustain it. Somehow, all of our decision making Calculus gets really warped by anxieties about membership, about giving. I'm not suggesting that we run roughshod over people's concerns and that we discount their anxieties.
0: But I am saying that God's commandments are not situational. I'm also saying that God did it at Gilgal. And God will do it again. Follow the path that God has set before you, no matter what stands in your way. And get ready for some weird and wonderful stuff to happen. This story affirms for me. Another essential truth
2: that God works with the everyday substance of our lives stones, water, wine, bread, mud, and spit. I love that story from John chapter 9 at the pool of Siloam. Jesus never used. Tinctures and potions and magic powders. He used his hands and his voice. That's it. He healed with touches and reassurances. He healed with affirmations like, Pick up your mat and walk, or Sit up, child. We know that Jesus is the bread of life, the living water, the vine. We are the branches and the salt.
0: Again, there are no magic wands or special hats. God uses dirt and rocks and water and blood, which have been the mundane components of our human existence for thousands and thousands of years. I think it's really interesting that from an
2: aesthetic and architectural perspective, Gilgal, this circle of stones, is not super impressive. It is not the Ark of the Covenant. It is not the tabernacle. It is certainly not the temple in Jerusalem. In those instances, the Lord gave extremely specific design plans with precise measurements, exacting requirements for all the materials. Even the decorative embellishments were proscribed. On the other hand, Gilgal is not tall or large
0: or beautiful. Aesthetically, architecturally, it is a pile of rocks. In many ways, I think it would be
2: easier to appreciate the really impressive thing that God has done by building a really impressive monument. But that is not what
0: God asked them to do. This seems so informal, impermanent, kind of underwhelming. What do these stones mean? I think that those
2: same stones are the ones upon which the early church was built. Those stones are still the same ones on which any physical church building in the planet is constructed. They are the theological foundations of our faith
0: upon which our house is built. These stones are the tangible
2: reminders of God's saving grace again and again. But because all they have in this situation is this pile of rocks, There has to be some accompanying discussion. And the discussion is what matters. The rocks are just placeholders, markers, signifiers. But what matters is the transmission of the teaching from generation to generation. That is what will sustain the people. That is what
0: will perpetuate the faith. A monument of any sort is just a pile of
2: stone unless it is accompanied by the retelling
0: of God's goodness. What do these stones mean? Well, child, I'm glad that you asked, right? The danger in reading and
2: rereading this biblical narrative is to see this episode at Gilgal as the happy ending. But to be clear,
0: crossing the Jordan meant that they were crossing into enemy territory. In my head, I want this story to be a triumphant
2: one about reaching the promised land capital P capital L the dream has finally come to fruition now we can rest in God's comfort and love this is the land flowing with
0: milk and honey hallelujah but no the Israelites are now one step closer to war And I always have very mixed feelings about war of any sort.
2: Once they cross the river, they celebrate Passover for the first time in a long time, which was why it was so important that they brought all those sheep with them across the river. Joshua then organizes a wide-scale circumcision campaign. That was loads of fun for everyone, I'm Sure. And then
0: they invade Jericho. I prefer my imagined plot.
2: Because then this scene at Gilgal serves as a kind of denouement. The conclusion of the action, the resolution, the fulfillment. But it's just not like that. Gilgal is not the concluding chapter. It is not even the penultimate scene. It is one episode in a long and tumultuous history. But it is yet another example of God at work in the lives of God's people.
0: Amen. The chaos that threatened to overtake them just didn't.
2: It was still an arduous journey. It was terrifying, but they made it. All the things that they feared the most didn't overwhelm. I'm not sure that we always see that as victory. I don't think that we understand that as salvation, but I think it is. The chaos did not overtake you. The chaos did not overtake me. The chaos did not overtake us.
0: God made a way where there had been none. So friends, where is your spiritual Gilgal? Where have you marked a successful crossing. When has God cleared a path for you when none seemed possible? Can you recall and retell the times when God's covenant covered you and sustained you? This week, and in the coming weeks,
2: I encourage you to erect your own little Gilgal. I want you to think about the chaos that threatened to overtake you, but didn't. You don't have to go down and do this at the edge of the Genesee, although you could if you wanted to, right? Right? I think that you could take a few stones in your backyard or if you like me and you live in an apartment building, maybe some beads or pebbles on a shelf. You can make a little gilgal with your Skittles or your chickpeas or your grapes. But I encourage you to not only recall the ways in which God has led you through the things that threaten to overwhelm. I want you to retell the ways in which God has led you through the things that threaten to overwhelm. You can decide when and how and to whom you recount God's goodness. But remember, without that oral history, it's just a pile of rocks or beads or skittles or chickpeas or grapes. The retelling. Is what
0: transmits and sustains and fortifies our faith. And all God's people said, Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.